1: It's been five years since the nuclear disaster at Fukushima dramatically changed the outlook for nuclear power in the United States and around the world. On the show today, we explore which way the winds are blowing for atomic power. Is it an industry in decline or poised for a leap forward? How does nuclear power fit into the battle against carbon pollution? I'm Greg Dalton, and first we will talk about the 100 nuclear power plants that generate about 20% of electricity around this country. Many of those plants have been given another 20 years or so to operate, while others hope to get a similar new lease on life. What are the cost and safety implications of running those plants longer than planned? Should the Diablo Canlan nuclear power plant remain operating or be shut down? We'll discuss those questions and more with our audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. In the second half of the show, we will turn to nuclear startups, two words that don't often appear in the same sentence. We will talk with a venture investor and two entrepreneurs trying to build nuclear energy they say is cheaper and safer than existing plants. First, the nuclear plants running refrigerators and TVs around the country today. David Baker joins us. He's an energy reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. Lucas Stavis is a professor at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. And Jessica Lovering is director of energy at the Breakthrough Institute, a pro-nuclear think tank. Please welcome them to Climate One. David Baker, let's begin with San Onofre. Uh, 1968, that nuclear power plant came online. Uh, It was recently shut down. So tell us the story of San Onofre and why it was shut down. San Onofre went through process of replacing a lot of the key equipment to the plant
4: so that they could keep it open another couple of decades. And what happened was in January of 2012, they had an incident where there was a small release of radioactive steam, and when they burrowed down trying to figure out exactly what had happened, they found out that some of this replacement equipment, which was extremely expensive, didn't operate the way that it was supposed to. There was basically a lot of premature wear on these tubes that are supposed to exchange heat within the reactor, and it's a key part of the plant. And it turned out that in order to keep that plant going, they were going to either have to come up with some kind of really extensive technological fix or maybe even replace the replacements, which would be extremely expensive. And the companies that operate it, primarily Southern California Edison, they took a look at the situation and knew that anything that they did was going to take a while to get federal approval for. And they threw in the towel. They basically said, no, this is not going to be worth it. It's not going to be effective for the
1: ratepayers. Let's shut it down. Lucas Davis, what was the carbon impact of that decision to shut down San Onofre?
0: It was enormous, Greg. Um, San Onofre represented about 10% of California's electricity generation. So when it shut down, it was the equivalent of putting 2 million new cars and trucks on the road. It was valued at about about $35 per ton. It was $300 million a year worth of carbon dioxide emissions, a huge increase in carbon dioxide.
1: Uh, so not a good deal f- for the climate. Uh, Jessica Lovering, Diablo Canyon is uh, the, the one remaining uh, nuclear power plant in the state, in California. There's a debate whether that should be shut down or extended. You think it should be kept going. Why?
3: Um, I think, as Lucas said, uh, San Onofre was a huge you know, 10% of California electricity. Diablo Canyon is a similar percentage, I think. If California is trying to dramatically reduce carbon emissions, which we have a state mandate to do, we can't do it without Diablo Canyon continuing to operate. It would take a huge amount of um, renewables to replace it, sort of unprecedented. It's unsure if we can handle that. And in the meantime, if we're going to be building a lot of renewables, they should be replacing all the natural gas. California is still about 60-70% natural gas. So if we're trying to reduce carbon emissions, let's keep the nuclear power plant operating, make our challenge a little bit easier.
1: David Baker, what's PG&E going to do? Are they, are they Any indication? Are they going to keep it open, shut it down? Are they going to do something similar to San Onofre? Or is Diablo Canyon different than San Onofre? It's sort of hanging in limbo, which I'm quite surprised by. The
4: PG&E if you go back a few years before the Fukushima accident, back to 2009, pg and announced with great fanfare that they wanted to keep Diablo open another couple of decades, and they were gonna start the process of getting a new license extension for it. After Fukushima, that came to a screeching halt. They said, okay, we're gonna stop. We're gonna pause the relicensing project with the federal government. We'll do some more seismic tests, and then we'll see. They've done those seismic tests. They've finished them off, shipped them to the the state government for for review. And the federal government, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, has said, okay, we've waited long enough. We're going to go ahead and just start all the administrative work with relicensing anyway. But the company is still officially on the fence. If you talk to them about it, they say, well, we'll kind of keep things going as we need to, but we have not made a final decision that we want to go ahead and keep this plant open a couple of decades. And they've been in that kind of limbo state for a couple of years now, which surprises me.
1: And isn't it economic to keep that going because it's already paid for? Are they concerned about this new earthquake risk, these faults that are newly discovered that weren't quite known when the plant was built? They say they're not concerned about the earthquake risks. Uh,
4: In fact, they like to boast that the plant, as it stands right now, can survive the strongest quake that's likely to hit there in 10,000 years. At the same time, though, they do have a lot of issues going at the state level that could require them to pump a lot of money into the plant. In particular, there's a decision that's been pending for a couple years at the state water resources control board where the, the, the state government may force the company to put in a new kind of cooling system for the plant. And the estimates I've seen of the cost of that are everywhere from $1.4 billion all the way up to $14 billion. And so
1: that's a big question mark. Jessica Levering, the cost of keeping uh, Diablo Canyon open, could that be prohibitive?
3: Yeah, and if uh, they wouldn't spend $14 billion. Uh, <laughs> they would shut down the plant if that's what they're required. And they're trying to find a solution with the State Water Control Board that's something they can afford and that helps them meet those environmental goals of reducing the water temperature and the water intake. So, uh,
1: Jessica Lovering, you went to uh, Fukushima last year. Tell us what you did and what you saw.
3: Um, so I was there for a conference on new perspectives around nuclear energy as Japan's very concerned uh, in a different way than people think. They're very concerned about where they're going to get their energy from and how they're going to talk about nuclear and how they're going to proceed uh, with public perception around nuclear uh, but they also know that they need that nuclear for their power grid. So I did go to the Fukushima Daiichi plant and saw what was around there, and it's a really dramatic sight, but I think what really struck me is that even in this um, like unprecedented worst-case scenario, you know, no one died from radiation, um, and seeing the area around there with all the damage from the earthquake and more so the damage from the tsunami... 15,000 people died, mostly from the tsunami. Um, I think what struck me was how that uh, catastrophe gets so underreported, and there's all this focus on the nuclear accident, which is sort of taking the focus off the real tragedy, which was they were unprepared for a tsunami, even though Japan is very prepared, uh, more than any other country, for tsunamis.
1: So no one's died from radiation yet, just been five years. A lot of times radiation takes longer than that. The World Health Organization says there's a 1% lifetime risk increase of cancers of all types of infant females, so there could be some... Uh, Yeah, it's
3: hard. You know, Japan um, has one of the highest cancer rates in the world. That's not a bad thing. It's because they live so long um, and they're very healthy as a population. So they don't get, you know, heart disease, diabetes.
1: They live long enough to get cancer. They live long enough to cancer. I know people
3: don't really think about that. But about one in three people gets cancer in Japan normally before um, or one in three people dies from cancer. So Uh,
1: Lucas Davis, what can we learn from Fukushima? You know, can it happen here?
0: You know, what we keep hearing after every nuclear accident is that this is the, this is the past, but moving forward, this is never going to happen again. And th- these were the old technologies, and the new technologies are not subject to this. Uh, I think nuclear, nuclear risk is, is very hard to quantify. It's, 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 it's imperative we do the best we can to talk about it. But even, even ignoring nuclear risks, the economics are so unfavorable for nuclear right now that in a sense it doesn't even matter. How large, the, how large the, the accident risks are. What's happened over the last decade is we've discovered an ocean of natural gas under our feet. And this has made every other form of electricity generation very, very hard to make an economic argument for.
1: Uh, so the, let's take that about the cost of nuclear. There's a couple of new plants under uh, construction in the southeast part of the United yeah. States. Uh, cost overruns. In fact, c- customers are already paying for the plant, even though yeah. they're not getting electricity from it. How unusual is that,
0: uh, Lucas Davis? Oh, this, so you're mentioning these two plants? There's one in Georgia, one in South Carolina. Uh, yes, they're both way over budget. Uh, over budget. They're both expected to cost 15 plus billion dollars now. And, it, and it's and highly unusual, as you mentioned, these costs are already getting passed on to Georgia and South Carolina ratepayers. so people are already seeing their bills increased, even though the plant the plant is not, not going to be finished, these plants are not going to be finished until 2019, twenty twenty. Ratepayers are already paying for this.
1: David Baker, how unusual is that in, in energy? And uh, this probably couldn't happen in California. Some people would say that it happens in the south where regulators are pretty cozy, chummy with the with the companies. Yeah. In general, in the utility
4: industry, it's, it's generally thought that the southeast is the most favorable environment. I think that's the term that you hear. But I mean, in terms of the, how common are the cost overruns and all that? I mean, that, that's the issue, one of the biggest issues that's dogged nuclear power since the 70s, since its heyday. And like the Vodal plant um, in Georgia, this is an existing power plant. They're adding two reactors to it, but it's already there. And already just adding the reactors to an existing plant is getting somewhere in the ballpark of $14 billion. Diablo, if you, for all the work that they had to do to open that thing and put in earthquake supports and whatnot, if you bring that up to today, if you do an inflation calculator, their costs in today's dollars were about $12.5 billion to open that plant. So it hasn't actually gotten cheaper over time. If anything, it's gotten a little more expensive, which is kind of scary for any technology.
1: But Jessica Lovering, there's a cost escalation here. Uh, cost of renewables, other forms of energy is going down, nuclear is going up. Can they compete on price? in yeah. the marketplace. I
3: think, I think so. There's one. I think there's a misconception when you say the cost hasn't. It's gone up a little bit, um, but I don't know why we would expect it to go down when we haven't built plants in 30 years. So there's no you know, the industry had to restart, essentially. And nuclear is not like a car or a solar panel that you turn off an assembly line. It's a major infrastructure project. So if you look at other projects like bridges, like the Bay Bridge, which was also very over budget, very delayed, uh, we're not expecting the next bridge we build to be cheaper. Uh, And so... There's questions about how you handle these big projects, but there's a lot of lessons that we've learned about how we can build nuclear cheaper, how other countries do it, particularly France and South Korea. They've actually had cost declines uh, over time, even though they're building these really large, complex projects.
1: And how much of that, is, Lucas Davis, I mean, or how much of that has been state government involvement or, or, or state subsidy to, to get those prices down uh, there's a question of whether nuclear is subsidized in the United States through the Price-Anderson Act or other, other ways. Uh, yeah. Lucas- so,
0: it reminds me, So, in 2000, go back to 2004 with me. Marvin Fertel is a lobbyist for the nuclear industry. He walked into Congress and testified in front of Congress that we've figured out how to build new, cheaper nuclear power plants, that these next nuclear power plants are going to cost about $1,000 per kilowatt. This was testified in front of Congress. On the basis of this, we, th- we launched the federal loan guarantees that the Vogel and summer plants are enjoying. Those costs are now ex- now on the, on the order of five times as high as, as what Marvin Fortell testified in 2004.
1: So what's the prospect, Jessica Levering? You know, other countries have done it cheaper, mm-hmm. and there's, always, there's been this long promise, oh, next time will be cheaper, but that next time never seems to come.
3: Yeah, I think, I mean, one big issue is we don't, because these are so big, we don't build enough of them to see those costs decline. So the big lesson learned that, could be shared as standardized reactor design. So building the same reactor over and over again, building multiple ones at each site, and also going a little smaller, since utilities, most utilities in the U.S. don't want to build four or five one-gigawatt reactors, which are huge. Uh, But maybe if the reactors are more like 500 megawatts or even smaller, 50 megawatts, you could build enough of them to sort of get those assembly line uh, learning efficiencies. efficiencies. Yeah. Yeah, and I think one thing is the price of a wind turbine or a solar panel has come down a lot in cost because they come off an assembly line, but the installed cost is a very different trend. And we saw you know, it, several years ago the price of a wind turbine went up for several years. And when China stopped sort of um, saturating the market with solar panels, we saw costs sort of level out for solar. So I think there's not as many inherent trends as we think. A lot of it is based on market demand and how we're doing these projects. So I think there's a lot that's still uncertain
1: David Baker? There's
4: one thing with that, though, that's important to keep in mind. If you're talking about the companies themselves, the utility companies, there's a lot of pressure to, you know, when you're adding a project, have something that you can actually know how long it's going to take you to Mm. get it built and really have a good handle on the cost before you start. And, yeah, if you're a utility... It makes a lot more sense to add a couple of natural gas plants because you can do that in less than 10 years. Whereas with a nuclear plant, you're looking at a very long window for getting a site permit, getting the federal permit and all that, even before you get to whether or not you can bring it in on cost. Yeah,
3: and that's another reason for this big boom in natural gas consumption. It's not just that the price of the fuel is so cheap. But these plants, these combined cycle gas turbines, the actual power plant is so cheap. It's modular and mass-produced, and the capital cost on those is sometimes less than $1,000 per kilowatt, which is...
1: We're talking about uh, nuclear power at Climate One with David Baker from the San Francisco Chronicle, Jessica Lovering from the Breakthrough Institute, and Lucas Davis from the UC Berkeley School of Business. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our lightning round and ask uh, brief uh, questions, yes or no questions of each of our speakers. Uh, starting with David Baker, uh, PG&E will elect to shut down the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. Yes or no? Prediction. Prediction. Oh. I think they might shut it down. I think there's a real chance, yeah. Lucas Davis, the U.S. nuclear industry is in deep decline. Yes. Uh, Jessica Lovering, the nuclear power industry has a poor record of controlling costs. True or false? True. Uh, Jessica Lovering, research suggests that men are more likely to take risks than women. <laughs> this t-
3: research, true.
1: That's why people trust women more than men on issues such as nuclear energy. True. David Baker. Some liberals oppose nuclear power blindly and ideologically, unencumbered by facts. I can't agree to the last clause, but I do think there's a lot of truth to the first. Ideological opposition on the left. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lucas Davis. That's similar to conservatives who deny climate science blindly and ideologically. Jessica Lovering, the Breakthrough Institute is ideologically in favor of nuclear power and tailors its research and reports to support that predetermined conclusion. False. Lucas Davis, uh, small modular reactors are like hydrogen. They are the fuel of the future and they always will be. False. Uh, Jessica Lovering, California imports coal energy that is laundered in Nevada. <laughs> David Baker, of the TV show *The Simpsons*, depicts an incompetent safety inspector at a nuclear power plant, Homer Simpson, mm-hmm. and a plant owner, Mr. Burns. How much does that reflect the reality inside the nuclear industry? None, a little, or a lot. I am
4: happy to say I have never met Homer Simpson on any <laughs> visit that I've made to Diablo Canyon.
1: That the ends of our, our lightning round. How do you think they did? I think they did pretty well. Um, Let's go on to uh, extending the, the licenses, uh, David Baker. A lot. Most of the plants around the country have been extended. Uh, is that a good thing, you know, continuing to run these plants? They're already paid for. They're already operating. Is that a good way, if you're concerned about carbon, to continue to get uh, carbon-free electricity? You're asking personal opinion? Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if they can demonstrate that they've got a good
4: safety record, if they can demonstrate that they've got all the equipment in the proper shape that they need
1: to keep going another couple decades. Yeah. Lucas Davis, extending the existing plants that are already working. Uh, Some have been shut down. Some uh, environmentalists and others want to shut down some of them, particularly near New York City. Uh, Should they be continued?
0: Extending them is absolutely a good idea. I, I draw a very strong distinction between new nuclear power plants, which are proving to be too expensive, and existing plants, which are... It's far from Homer Simpson, the people who operate these plants are amazing. They've learned to produce so much electricity with this existing capital stock. Let's use it. Think of, we're talking about enormous amounts of carbon dioxide abatement.
1: Let's talk about waste, a big problem with nuclear. Uh, uh, Lucas Davis, when waste is included in the cost of nuclear power, how does that change? Because nuclear power is often said to be uh, you know, cheap once it's up and running, and sometimes that the waste cost is not included in that.
0: The waste is, the waste is, is, is small relative to production costs.
1: Uh, Jessica Lovering, what's the the future solution to waste in the United States? Uh, the, the first, uh, the most recent attempt was trying to shove it into Nevada, which was already kind of glowing a little bit, like they won't notice or, or put it there. Uh, so what's the next solution to waste in this country? Well,
3: I don't think there's a solution, I think there's many solutions, and I think we're going to Pick one and go with it. But there's reactors that can burn the waste as fuel. There's a lot of different types of reprocessing, recycling. And uh, I'm excited about all the options that we have for waste because it's really I like to think of it as a resource, not as a you know, piece of trash that we need to bury
1: and so that's a consent based process where states and counties would actually say hey send it to us we want it uh, is that happening and that's
3: that's the direction that they're going in is starting to restart the process for uh, maybe not a single temper or a single permanent repository but many maybe many regional repositories that would be consent based communities would compete put in bids to host them because uh, they want to have a high tech uh, facility in their community that they trust and that has lots of jobs and it would be more it would be more beneficial to the community if there was also r and d going on there, and um, they were developing new reprocessing technologies or building new reactors rather than just a waste dump. but I think there's still a lot of communities in the u s that would like to host such a facility.
1: The idea is though that it, they would volunteer it wouldn 't be uh, imposed yep. upon them by the federal government, which was a big problem. In, in Nevada. Um, let's look outside the United States. Lucas Davis, is nuclear happening? It, it took a dive after Fukushima. Is, is it, you know, China's doing a lot of nuclear. What's the, what's the prospect outside the United States?
0: I think if, if you step back, you see that the nuclear power industry is in deep decline. That The, the peak was really in the 1970s, early 1980s. Uh, in the late 1970s, there were 300, 300 plants under construction worldwide. Today there's less than 70, most most in China. China has something like 25 plants under construction, reactors under construction. Uh, I'm thrilled that there's 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 a few plants being built. I, I think that the carbon challenge is so enormous, we need to be trying everything. Uh, I'm kind of glad that it's not going into my rates. Um, uh, but it, but just to be fair, this is this is a small level of growth in nuclear power compared to the enormous. Increases in energy demand that are occurring all over the world. This is an industry that nuclear is going to continue to be a smaller and smaller fraction of our generation portfolio.
1: So as the new power that's being added, uh, nuclear's market share, David Baker, is, is
4: shrinking. Is that right? Yeah. And I think it probably, unless there's massive intervention of the government scale due to climate change, I think it's going to continue to shrink. I mean, even in China, China is an excellent example. They're they're trying to build this, but they're also building a lot of renewable facilities as well. And they're now doing sort of a 180 on coal within the last five years or so. They've just decided, no, we can't keep doing that. But rather than going whole hog on 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 nuclear power, no, they're just doing it as part of a balanced portfolio. And I think that's what you're going to see going forward in the countries that are more receptive to it. Other countries aren't going to touch it at all.
1: Let's talk about uh, the rates, David Baker, in California, and we're going to go to our audience questions. Uh, The rates have recently, some people say that renewables have made electricity more expensive in California. That's a bad thing. Is that true? Yes, it's true. Um, We have had an increase
4: in our rates due to increasing the amount of renewable power that we've got on the grid. And that is going to keep going for a few years. It's when you talk to PG&E about it, they'll never give you an exact number. But they say that most years it's somewhere in the ballpark of one, two and at the absolute most three percent increase in the electricity uh, rates that you're paying. And that depends just on how many of these new facilities are coming online in that given year, but at this point, the prices that they're getting bid now for new projects, new renewable projects that haven't been built, uh, those prices have really tanked to the point where for new solar projects, they're actually coming in around how it's, uh, at the same price that, that that Diablo Canyon can generate power for. So they're already cost competitive. They're going to become more so over time. And So, yeah, we have seen an increase in our utility bills because of renewable power. But there is a possibility in the future
1: that that will start to reverse itself. Jessica Levering, if renewables continue to get cheaper, how will that affect nuclear?
3: Um, I think it won't very much because they provide very different kinds of energy or very different kinds of electricity. We still need baseload. We're still going to need baseload for many decades. So I think... Your choices uh, are limited in that sense. It's going to be nuclear. And if you want to keep it low carbon, it can also be hydro. But... um I don't think they're going to compete too much. They can work well together, and uh, hopefully that's how it'll go forward.
1: Baseload being power that's always there. Yeah. Wind and solar on fluctuate demand. with yeah. the, the wind and, uh, and, and the sun. <laughs> let's, let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Colin. My name is uh,
5: Bob Gould. I work with uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility. I'm also a, a pathologist, and I just wanted to comment on what I think is a very lowball estimate of uh, health impacts from Fukushima that Ms. Lowry put out Uh, just claiming that no one died from Fukushima, sort of end of story. Uh, We already know from the Fukushima Childhood Screening Project that about 160 thyroid cancers have been diagnosed, and understanding that uh, part of that might be screening effect, those that have been picked up have been shown to be very aggressive with local metastases and lymph node uh, involvement as well. So I just think that one has to be honest about what the likely health impacts would be, and not downplay them. Okay, Jessica Levering.
3: I'll be honest. Um, I think there's. It's very difficult with the thyroid cancer because it is a lot of it is a screening issue. So the more you look for it, the more you find. Um, good studies compare similar regions, uh, similar child groups. Uh, people that were affected by Fukushima, people on the other side of the country. And they've actually found still very similar rates of actual thyroid cancer. In fact, one study found lower rates of actual thyroid cancer um, in people around Fukushima. Now, I think that's a just statistical noise, but um, we're not seeing an actual effect there yet. And with um, the surrounding radiation, I mean, right now, Fukushima has less, radi- has less background radiation than parts of Denver. So... And with regards to the ocean, um, you know, I think we want to limit the amount of radiation going into the ocean, but there's still a lot of background uh, radiation in the ocean. There's still a lot of material, unfortunately, from atmospheric weapons testing. Uh, so it's sort of, it's a big ocean. Um, you know, we don't, I don't want to be flipping about dumping radioactive material in the ocean, but it's a very, very small amount, um, and Japan has a really good program for screening every single bag of rice that comes out of the Fukushima prefecture. And I wouldn't be worried. I went to Fukushima, ate the food, uh, and I think we, have, we n- have that problem under control. It's very easy to detect radiation. So I am not concerned. I think you there could have been a, a big public health effect, but we're very good at detecting and now. We're very good at screening. So... I think it's under control.
1: Uh, We have to wrap up this segment here. Our thanks to Jessica Lovering uh, from the Breakthrough Institute, uh, Lucas Davis from the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley, and David Baker from the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank them for joining us this segment. Thank you.
2: And now, here's a Climate One Minute. As our guests point out, the costs of building a nuclear power plant or of getting existing ones up and running can soar into the billions. So who's to blame for the sticker shock? The industry likes to point the finger at government and its pricey safety regulations. But Dave Lochbaum of the Union of Concerned Scientists says nuclear power companies may just have their own bad management to blame.
0: Well, the studies we've done have shown that typically it's not a matter of regulations driving costs up so much is that companies that mismanage their activities and run afoul of the regulations, those drive up costs up far more than the few regulations that don't have a safety nexus. Time and time again, it's been mismanagement that causes nuclear power plants to be shut down for extended periods. We've had 50 reactor shutdowns of over a year since mm-hmm. the Three Mileland accident. We estimate the cost of each of those to be nearly $2 billion for electricity that was not generated So it's mismanagement more than an overzealous regulator that's crippling the industry.
2: Dave Lockbaum, director of the Nuclear Safety Project for the Union of Concerned Scientists, speaking at Climate One in 2014. Now back to the second half of our program with Greg Dalton at the Commonwealth Club.
1: For decades, the nuclear industry has been promising to cut the price tag for building atomic power plants. But costs have soared. Meanwhile, solar, wind, and now even fossil fuels are cheaper than just a few years ago. We're turned now to young companies betting they can deliver on the elusive promise of safer and cheaper nuclear energy. Caroline Cochran is COO of Oklo, a nuclear startup based in Silicon Valley. Ray Rothrock is a partner emeritus at Venrock, a venture capital firm that has invested in nuclear energy. And Jose Reyes is chief technology officer of New Scale Power a young company based in Portland, Oregon, that is backed by the U.S. Department of Energy. Please welcome them to Climate One. So, so, Caroline Cochran, let's begin with you. You were an MIT graduate student and got into uh, nuclear energy. So tell us how you, you got into this business.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. so I wasn't a nuclear engineering undergrad. I did mechanical engineering and also economics because I just loved them both, so I did them both. Um, but I I looked at mechanical engineering grad school and realized it's it's not that exciting, and I, I met some people who were involved in nuclear, and I really had no background at all on it. Um, learned that it can really affect large-scale issues that our, our world faces, whether it's medical imaging power, non-proliferation, and things like that. So that's the reason why I decided to go into nuclear engineering grad school.
1: And then how did you get together to form Oklo? And tell us what it does and how it's going to be different. It's going to consume waste of other plants. It's not going to be... It's a different type of technology, different kind of waste.
2: Yeah. So the first thing that people have to understand about the design we've done is that it's very, very small. Um, So it's two megawatts electric. The idea is to replace diesel generators. So instead of burning... Lots and lots of diesel, and the cost of transporting that diesel sometimes we burn ten gallons of diesel for every gallon you uh, actually end up producing electricity from. That's that's kind of the market that um, that needs this kind of power. They, you know, if you've seen like ice road truckers or things like that, these people are living in remote areas where um, power. We take it for granted, but it's it's a necessity sometimes to live. So that's that's the concept behind it. It's a it's a container size. It's not portable, so it's 35 tons. Um, there's no such uh, backpack reactor, but um, so that's that's kind of the concept behind what we're doing at Oak Globe.
1: And Jose Reyes, you're doing something, uh, also it's a smaller scale. I I don't know, I host an energy uh, radio program. I don't know what a megawatt is. I can't get my head around that. So, you know, give us a sense of the scale and size and how yours is uh, different than what's uh, being done. People think of nuclear power plants.
6: Right, yeah, uh, probably the biggest difference is is it's a paradigm shift in how you you build nuclear power plants. So what we've done is we've gone to a, a very small reactor. It's a 50 megawatts. So 50 megawatts electric would would power about uh, well about 50,000 homes. So so it's 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 a it's a good size of of energy. That would be one module. It's built in a factory. That's the reactor vessel as well as the containment. Uh, Containment's about 15 feet in diameter, about 70 feet long. So it's a it's a good size, but it's not very large compared to existing reactors. Each of those modules up to 12 can be put in one reactor building. essentially, you have a reactor that sits in this essentially uh, uh, a stainless steel thermos bottle, underground, underwater. And that's the basic concept. So what we found was that uh, this approach really uh, reduces the the, the cost associated with nuclear. Because what you're doing is in a factory under a very controlled condition, you're building the reactor, uh, fabricating, uh, and on site you're doing all your civil construction. So our build is a three-year build. So it significantly reduces the length of time required to, to build the plant, which reduces the amount of money that you borrow uh, to build the plant. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, uh, economic forces involved in reducing costs. And simplicity is, is also a very large factor in it.
1: And is this something you're doing in a laboratory now, or are you actually delivering power today with nuclear? Who th- are these real costs or, or prospective theoretical costs?
6: Yeah, so base- what we, uh, our, our lead investor is Floor. And so we've done very... Big detail, construction company. Big construction companies. So uh, they, they've done a lot of work on uh, getting our cost estimates for us. So about 90% of the cost estimate are actually uh, based on bids we've received from, from contractors in the U.S. Because we've gone to small forgings, we can get all of our forgings in the U.S. Because you can go to more than one place to get those forgings, you drop the, the price down for the cost. Uh, so it's, it's, it's based on very um, well-established, bottoms up uh, data. Uh, the the um, the Deployment period, I think, is, is really key uh, in moving that forward. We, we are now in the, the design certification stage, uh, so in terms of where we are. We're completing all of our testing uh, this year. Uh, so we've, we've completed about $40 million worth of, uh, of testing, large-scale facilities uh, in Italy, in France, in Germany, where they have specialized test facilities, as well as in the U.S., where we've got a one-third-scale version of the plant that we've built. It's uh, electrically heated, but uh, it models all the behaviors of, uh, of the, uh, the new scale module. Ray Rothrock, you
1: did study nuclear engineering undergraduate uh, some years ago. Uh, and uh, how is the sort of nuclear establishment poised to deal with the kind of new startup companies that we have here today? Is, is, it, is there a, a, a welcoming environment to do a nuclear company that tries to do something new in the nuclear energy industry in the United States?
5: Well, I think welcoming is a relative term. Uh, it is quite interesting that we're in this new phase of nuclear you were talking on the previous panel about these very large expensive plants and they are Uh, there's only about 40 utilities in the nation that can afford a 10 billion dollar project of any kind nuclear or whatever but what's happening in the last handful of years and this started about five years ago is there's a whole lot of new nuclear startups and they've picked on ideas that the united states actually tested in the 50s and the 60s in idaho at the national range there and some of these ideas are really quite clever. They were, they were shelved when Admiral Rickover picked pressurized water as a core propulsion unit for ships, and then the utility industry adopted it, which is what I studied. But now, 30 years later, this stuff is pretty interesting, eh? Because it burns fuel. It doesn't require pressure, a pressure building like this, a third of the cost of, uh, of a big power plant. And th- they could be very small. And so this notion, you don't need electricity in big chunks. You can do it in small chunks. So this, these innovators, there's a, we in one of the conferences that I attended at the White House a few years ago, they asked the question, well, Ray, how many of these projects are there out there? Well, we went out and counted them. There are 44 fission research projects privately financed going on in the United States. I was stunned by that number. The White House was stunned by that number. Secretary Moniz was stunned by that number. These are, these are the Oakhlos and the Scales and all these people that are out there doing this. So we're, why? It's because of climate change. It's because of high cost of electricity and all the other stuff. You, gotta, you have to have an industry here in the United States to develop this technology, to export it around the world, to electrify the world, because we cannot burn fossil fuel anymore. Fact. Well-
1: why has it been so hard for the industry to, to contain costs and, and get costs down? Why have costs in the United States soared so much?
5: Every time something happened, we would uh, have to retrofit the existing fleet. And if you've built a big, complex machine and you've got to go in and just like you we were talking about Sun and Ofri earlier, it's very expensive to go do that. And maybe it should have been done like that in the first place, but it is what it is. And so a lot of this retrofit has gone on. Also, these are very large facilities. I mean, again, a gigawatt plant, whether it costs $2 billion or $10 billion, that's a lot of dollars. So uh, making them small was never part of the equation. People did not, they, they, they thought that uh, scale economies would be what it's all about. But it turns out if you, if you eliminate the pressurized water and you eliminate some of the elements of the source term, you can make them small and compact, and that means cheaper. And that's
6: what's happening.
1: Jose Reyes, can Fukushima happen here?
6: You know, Fukushima was an event that really was driven by an earthquake and tsunami. And so we, we think about maybe coastal regions where you could have tsunamis. But uh, today, the uh, nuclear power plants have, have learned quite a bit. And so the, the NRC implemented uh, certain uh, tasks and, uh, and uh, actions after Fukushima to assure that that couldn't happen here. Uh, now, all uh, nuclear power plants today are, are actively powered in terms of their safety, uh, meaning they need electricity to, to provide safety over a long period. Power time. goes out big pr- big trouble. That's right. So you have backup diesels, and that's why you have redundant uh, systems. Uh, when we look at the passive safety systems, like a new scale design, uh, what you'll see is that we've come up with an approach where we can eliminate the need for AC power uh, or DC power. Uh, we've eliminated the need for additional water or operator action to put the plant, the reactor, in a safe configuration. That's why these passive safety systems are so intriguing right now. And you'll see more and more designs coming forward with this concept of passive safety.
1: Uh, Caroline Cochran, there's, uh, the F- Fukushima plant had something, a General Electric design, the Mark I design. There are similar plants near Philadelphia and Boston where y- you used to live. Uh, are you concerned that, that, that uh, Fukushima could happen here? Has the U.S. government done everything that, that should be done to make sure that those same reactor types don't, aren't a problem here on those coastal cities?
2: a big concern for the public. Um, is it a, con- a big concern of mine? Less so, but um, one of the things that the, um, the DOE is actually looking into is possibly even using reactors like ours, um, ones that don't require water, um, to back up existing nuclear reactors. So when they lost power, they lost their diesel uh, generators to provide, the, as Jose eloquently said, their, their active safety systems one thing that would be great is, is moving towards passive safety, like what NuScale has. Another thing to keep our existing fleet, which is almost two-thirds of our country's emission-free electricity, is to possibly look into backing it up with um, smaller nuclear reactors that don't require water. So if, uh, you know, actually our reactor, if a flood happened, nothing would affect it.
1: Ray Rothrock, uh, U.S. Public support for nuclear has has gone down since Fukushima. It it peaked at about 60 percent. According to Gallup, there's probably different polls. Uh, It's down to about 50 percent today. Fukushima affected American willingness to, to nuclear. Where do you think it goes from here? And does that make it difficult for companies that you want to invest in when the American public is very split?
5: Well, you know, there's a very large market. The global market for nuclear power is a lot bigger than that in the United States. The U.S. electric grid uh, is about what it was 10 years ago. It's not growing very fast. What you really need is to take these safe, contained, passive systems and move them out so that people who now presently don't have electricity will get cheap, clean electricity. So the market is actually beyond that of the United States. Uh, if we don't do that, if the United States doesn't build that industry and export that industry, someone else will, fact, or they will scrape the ground and dr- dig out coal and throw it or burn dung or whatever it is they burn to heat their homes and cook their food and then get sick and die from. Uh, we will, that, that's what we'll have to do. And we have an opportunity right now for about the next decade to rebuild that industry to export these safe plants.
1: Carolyn Cochran, uh, some people would say that uh, solar is the way to get to people who are energy poverty, who are not connected to a grid right now in a developing country. They can put up a little solar panel, a little battery that's better than coal and cheaper than nuclear. Is, is that a, what do you think about that as an option versus nuclear addressing the billion or so people that don't have what we enjoy every day?
2: Absolutely, solar panels has has provided power to so many people in developing world, and it's it's incredible what that can do. Just have enough power to power a cell phone, right, or, yeah. or to have some amount of access. Um, some of the people we've talked to in developing areas, uh, however, would still like to be able to have, you know, lights on at night so that their kids can study or, or things like that. Um, Even with a limited amount of storage, um, there's only so much um, that you can get. And when when you have uh, nuclear power, then they could have that power on all the time.
1: Jose Reyes, your uh, website, New Scale, uh, kind of pokes at renewables because they're not always there. That's one of the advantages, I guess, for nuclear versus uh, wind and solar. What role do you see wind
6: and solar playing, and are they competitors of nuclear? you know we've we've just completed a study uh, for our design and uh, we're looking at other applications of, of our multi module plant and uh, we did a study for uh, UAMPS the Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems uh, t- to look at how we would link our modules to their wind farm and what we find is that we can actually uh, levelize the, that, that load. We can add stability to the grid by linking those two together. So we have three modes of load following that allow us to do that. So we're looking now at, at how nuclear can, can link better with uh, expanding renewables, solar and, and wind, uh, because that, in the end, the, the, the challenge for those types of powers is the variability. If you, can level, if you can couple it with something that's stable that can follow the load, uh, then you have a real opportunity to, to move that forward.
1: We're talking about nuclear power today at Climate One with Jose Reyes from New Scale Power, Carolyn Cochran from Oklo, and Ray Rothrock, a venture capitalist from Silicon Valley. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we're going to go to our lightning round for this segment, uh, and starting with uh, Ray Rothrock. Uh, VCs are not as smart <coughs> as they think they are. <laughs> True. Uh, Follow up, Ray Rothrock. Thing. That's why many got taken to the cleaners on clean tech investments.
5: Yes, I I believe that to be the case. They forgot two fundamental things. One, the market their products were going to compete in were commodity markets, Uh, electricity, electrons. uh, It's a commodity. You've got to be able to be below the market price in order to compete. And the fact that it takes patient capital. These, These are physical machines, typically, whether it's solar, batteries turbines, biochemical plants, whatever it is. these are physical things. And Silicon Valley has very much moved away from making physical things in the last couple of decades. Whereas in the 80s and the 70s even, we built these huge fabrication facilities and things. So they forgot what, what it takes and the, and the capital required. Probably what I, th- I think the biggest risk for any of these new energy startups is the financing risk overall. That's the hard that's the hard problem to solve. It
1: takes a lot of money to yeah, build yeah. big plants. Jose Reyes, some entrepreneurs don't have the attention span to focus on energy and climate <laughs> challenges yeah. that are long-term.
6: I, yes or no? I, I would <laughs> say yes. I, I think it's a, we want a quick return, but uh, nuclear takes... Yeah. Uh, takes. Well, for me, I've been at this now for 15 years.
1: Uh, Caroline Krocran, you probably will build your modular nuclear reactors in China. Yes we no. will go
2: wherever our first customer is, and right now that's looking like the United States.
1: Uh, Jose Reyes, another Fukushima could sink your company and other nuclear
6: startups. Uh, no, well, at least, uh, I, well, uh, you know, in 2007 when I, when I founded the company, uh, it, it, and we, we marched along a certain path, and 2011 came along and I said, well, this is the end. Floor actually invested in NuScale after Fukushima because of the difference in our design.
1: Oh, so it, it
6: gave an advantage to the
1: to this cleaner, safer plants. Uh, last one for Ray Rothrock. You attended a, a Texas A and M. Does California or Texas present a brighter blueprint for America's future
5: in nuclear? I would say California probably, because Texas has an enormous uh, oil and gas economy uh, that's not going to go away, and they're going to figure out more and more how to make it cheaper. And, and it, I mean, they're close to it. That helps a lot. California needs. Clean energy, if it tends to lead the world in that front.
1: That ends our lightning round. How they do? I think they did pretty well on that one. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh. On that American point, Ray Rothrock, TerraPower uh, is a company, nuclear power, backed by Bill Gates, a uh, pretty famous TED Talk that he, he uh, kind of got that going. Uh, they w- now are partnering with China. Why should we care about that? Is that a good thing, they're going to China, or do you see that as a loss for the United
5: States? It's a huge loss for the United States. In fact, we've lost a second one. Thorcon went to Indonesia as well. So out of those 44 startups, two have left the United States. What happens is where you build these things is where the intellectual property. Is gathered. Also, it's where this massive, I mean, think of all the union jobs that have gone away because the nuclear industry went away. We're talking intellectual property, financial capacity, uh, construction and manufacturing capacity that simply needs to be rebuilt here. If we don't do it here, it will go elsewhere. I guarantee China plans to build 200 gigawatts of power in 25 years. This country only has 100 gigawatts of power, and it took us about 20 years to build it. So can you imagine what that will look like when they get that up and running?
1: Carolyn Cochran, you said your first customer is probably going to be in the United States. So tell us about that. You think there's promise here for, for smaller, you say safer types of nuclear here?
2: Yeah. It gets back to um, trying to be off-grid and... Um, not being part of that commodity market that Ray talked about. Um, So there are off-grid customers in the United States that are hungry for something like this. Um, It's interesting, even California now is getting to prices of electricity where this would make sense.
1: Uh, Jose Reyes, uh, innovators often disrupt incumbent industries. Uh, You're backed by a big incumbent, a a giant that builds nuclear power plants. And can you innovate without disrupting the
6: industry that you're trying to shake up? There's uh, some level of disruption that has to happen. So right now we have an advisory board of 26 utilities, and they're they're looking at the timeline to retire their coal-fired plants. So they look at this as an option to replace those coal-fired plants. And so it's disruptive in that sense, but at the same time, times have changed, and we, we are trying to face this, uh, this carbon issue. So, yeah, there's some disruption.
1: That's uh, Ray Rothrock. Uh, that's a little, not quite disruption. Might a gentle <laughs> change uh, <laughs> versus? I mean, Apple wanted to eat IBM's lunch. You know, Tesla wants to really change the auto industry. Uh, you know, do you seek disruption in th- this industry? If these pe- companies are successful, how are they going to affect the giants that are there?
5: Well, they will affect the giant electricity producers that are there, I think. So, the the utilities. Yeah, the utility companies. I mean, they will give them choices and options. I honestly wouldn't want to be on a utility board making a decision that has to last for 50 or 60 years on an economic basis. Think about that. Look what we have seen the price of oil in this country, the price of coal in this country, and so forth over the many decades. So, giving them options to choose something that once you build it and turn it on, it operates at that level for 50, 60 years. That is an option I think a lot of utilities will will take, and that, that's a disruption, a big disruption.
1: Now, I believe you don't have an invest. Do you have investments in either of these companies? Neither of these, of these but okay. I do have two. Yeah. Okay, and if you're looking at thinking about a world where people are worried about Islamic State and nuclear terrorism, do you invest in a startup that has... Uh, in, in the case of Oklo, they can eat uh, existing nuclear fuel and have lower proliferation risk, or new scale, which produces more of the same kind of highly uh, active, radioactive waste that could get in the hands of some bad people, which would you make a bet right here on this stage?
5: Uh, between these, I'd bet on both of them, actually. Uh, Jose, because his plant, this New Scale, is of the sufficient size that it will, it will be the next generation for many decades to come, while uh, Oklo is a, a, different, a whole different market for that. For example, in Alaska, 80% of the people in Alaska live off the grid. They need Oklos really badly. They pay huge prices for power and food, and they need that access. And that's the same uh, in most remote places of the world. So very two different markets. I would invest in both of those.
1: Okay, I think we heard, heard that here. Let's get back to um, the uh, alternatives of renewables uh, in terms of you know, the, Ray Rothrock. The costs are going down for, for solar. Costs are going up for nuclear. Uh, gas is cheap. Everyone keeps saying it won't be cheap forever, but it hasn't been rising uh, much lately. Uh, you know, Can nuclear compete when projections for solar and wind are down, down, down?
5: Well, they'll only go down so far. Uh, you can't make something for nothing eventually. Uh, And I think the nuclear hasn't had a chance yet. Some of these new designs, like I say, should be extremely cheap because you don't have these pressurized systems, you don't have active safety systems and so forth. They're just designed better and cheaper in the long run. We have to build them and test them, of course. No one will buy a paper reactor. We actually have to build one of these things. Uh, In fact, we have to build many of these things. One of the hallmarks of the Silicon Valley is a great idea gets many shots on goal. We should do that in the United States. We should have a place where nuclear entrepreneurs can go and have many shots on goal to stand, just like we did in the 50s and 60s. We did it once before. We can do it again.
1: But hasn't the industry been saying that for a long time, small, modular, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming? Isn't that No, not really. World? No, no
5: they've, been, they've been... The AP 1000, these large plants and stuff, the Koreans are copying them and other manufacturers around the world are copying them. There hasn't been that much innovation on the small front except in the last decade.
1: We're talking about... Uh, nuclear power at Climate One. In this segment, we have Carolyn Cochran from Oklo, a nuclear startup, Jose Reyes from New Scale Power, and Ray Rothrock, a venture capitalist from Silicon Valley. Let's go to our audience question. Welcome.
5: I have a question, perhaps mainly for Dr. Reyes. Um, People actually spoke about China quite a bit, and I'm going to talk about China. Um, You know, in China, they not only have the power demand that's going way up, but they also have cheap labor and, frankly, a no-nonsense attitude, we all saw what they did for solar panels. You know, it's when manufacturing moved to China that the cost came way down, and the prices that people are boasting about with solar panels, you know, that's largely because of that. And I'm wondering, would you consider perhaps, you know, I, I don't know if selling your technology is the right word, but having the assembly line be built in China, if that's what it takes in order for nuclear to be cheap enough to compete?
6: Yeah, there's, there's lots of options out there right now. A, and certainly the... Uh, the uh, uh, if we're looking at the Asian market or, or the, the European market, having, having local fabrication is certainly a significant advantage. Uh, th- our first plant right now is, that we're looking at is, is at Idaho National Laboratory, uh, the UAMPS, uh, uh, Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems. So the first plant will be built in the U.S. Is, is kind of where we're at.
1: Next question. Welcome to Climate One.
6: Yes, I'm David Kane. I'm with the Citizens Climate Lobby, and I've been
0: looking at studies for a national high-voltage DC grid called the Green Grid, and it's optimized for renewable energy. My question is, uh, the study finds that to stabilize the national grid, you need a lot of natural gas basically to follow the load. Specifically, does some of the modular technologies you're looking at possibly displace the reliance on national on stabilizing the grid in our economy.
1: And one of the things, uh, Jose Reyes, about natural gas is like your stove at home, you can turn it up by little bits up and down, so that's helpful for balancing the grid. Can your, uh, can your reactor do that?
6: Right, we've just published several papers that describe how we would load follow, uh, and could, we have three different levels, instantaneous load following, a more gradual load following, and then load shaping. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of work and innovation that's gone into that, but that, yeah, we can
1: and
2: and oh sorry. Yeah, to add to that, I would say a lot of advanced reactors can can load follow as well.
6: It means you like your stove at
1: home, you can turn it up and down. Uh, let's go to our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One.
5: Uh, Bob Archer, Citizens Climate Lobby. Uh, Bill Gates supports a carbon tax to internalize the external costs of fossil fuels to advance innovation and investment. Jim Hansen as well. What are your views on the carbon tax policy, and if you support it, are you engaged with Congress on this issue,
1: Ray Rothrock? I mean, a lot of investors don't like to yeah. make policy-based uh, dependent yeah. investments, but where are yeah. you on that? Ta-
5: taxes uh, are is a very effective policy to change behavior. Incentives, on the other hand, don't always do that. So, if you're going to do, if government's going to pass something like that, I would pass a tax, and it should be a very expensive tax. We don't pay the full price of putting carbon up the stack. We just flat don't. And if you put a tax on it, it will affect people's decisions. The problem is what they make, what the government makes today, they can take away tomorrow and completely change the economics. It's the reliability of that tax, I think, that's a really big issue.
1: We're talking about nuclear power, Climate One. Let's go to our next question. Uh, I'm a little surprised that, uh, in talking about the uh,
4: intermittency of uh, solar and wind, the panel seems uh, unaware Uh, that intermittency can be compensated for, uh, not by uh, more dirty natural gas uh, fossil fuel peakers, uh, not by problematic nuclear, uh, but by energy storage, uh, energy demand response, uh, energy efficiency. And this is really what California is going to be
1: counting on, uh, to uh, supplement uh, uh, solar and wind in, in coming decades. So, Jose Reyes, uh, your bet competitive advantage versus renewables, is that always there, but other things could take that away.
6: Right. You know, when I look at, uh, at storage, I think there's, we need to use everything we can. Uh, but if you look at one fuel pellet, the energy density, energy content of one fuel pellet, about the size of the tip of my pinky, that's equivalent to a ton of coal. Uh, I already have all the energy storage I need. (laughs) It's found in in uranium. And so I think we need to be able to use that as part of the solution. Uh, I think there'll be advancements in batteries and storage, but I think the... The, the progress there is going to be, uh, it's, a, it's a rough road.
5: Ray Rothrock? Huh? Uh, yes. Uh, batteries would be huge. And, in fact, ARPA-E, uh, the U.S. government a few years ago, let 40 different startup companies with battery research. They gave capital that, and they're spread all across the United States. But I've got to tell you, electric chemistry is a lot harder than solar and a lot harder than nuclear. Electric chemistry we have yet to figure out. Uh, we should continue to fund it, but we are a long way from grid-scale, cheap, uh, cheap electricity.
2: And to add to that, too, the, one of the large—I studied one of the largest um, grid-scale battery projects that was done, in, actually in Texas, um, and the longest amount of time that it could release energy back onto the grid was about an hour. So if you if you need, and maybe a, you know some of them maybe could get up to a day, but when you maybe have uh, a week without electricity, if you have cloudy days for a week and things like that, or if you don't have wind, um, that presents a huge problem um, to have that level of, of um, variability.
1: Storage is the holy grail, as they say, uh, in Silicon Valley. Let's go to our next audience
5: question. Welcome, Ken Gibson from Oakland. Uh, going back to the fuel cycle, how do you see fuel delivered to and then waste removed from even NuScale, Oklo, and even TerraPower?
6: Jose Reyes. So, uh- Currently, our, our, our plan is to follow the existing uh, requirements from the NRC. Uh, it is a dry cast storage, is, is what has been done. It is approved for about 120 years until we get to some decision about recycling or, or reprocessing or whatever uh, that might look like. Certainly, our fuel could be used to support uh, other, mm-hmm. other designs. They could burn our waste.
1: Carolyn Cochran?
2: Yeah, so our, our units are made to go out for about 12 years, be underground, produce power nonstop for those 12 years without refueling. And then at that point, we ship it back to the f- central facility is the concept. These things are packaged in what's already basically similar to a spent fuel container. So they've actually taken tests and dropped these things from 1,000 feet in the air, and they, they don't break. So these things are, are brick outhouse. house. Um, and the concept also is that we can add a little bit of fresh fuel and send it back out without any reprocessing. We can do that about eight times, so up to 100 years before we have some waste that's the half life for that is about a couple hundred years instead of tens of thousands of years, right?
1: Our thanks to Ray Rothrock, a partner emeritus at Venrock, and uh, Jose Reyes with New Scale Power, and Carolyn Cochran with Oaklo Power. I'm Greg Dalton. You can join the conversation online. Uh, and you can follow the. We have some tweets today from uh, Nuclear Resources using our handle at Twitter, uh, at climateone.com. I'd like to thank our audience here in San Francisco and online. Thank you all for being part of this. Thank you. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.